If you have a Bible or you're using the Black Bible, our scripture reading today is in Luke chapter 13. We're in the last portion of Luke 13, Luke 20, 13, verses 22 to 35. And as I mentioned last week, this is sort of the beginning of part two of three parts of the journey to Jerusalem. So back in chapter 9, in verse 51, Luke introduces a section of the account of Jesus's life, saying, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then today it sort of repeats that idea in verse 22. It'll start, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And then again in chapter 17, this idea, this phrase will be continued. This this notion that, that Jesus intentionally, purposefully went to Jerusalem knowing exactly what was in store for him and going because that was what was in store, his death, his resurrection. And so uh, we, we read these portions of Jesus' teaching and, and we see his heart uh, specifically throughout these teachings, we see his heart for the lost. We see um, someone not just resolved that theologically speaking, uh, there will be those who won't be saved. And so there's, what can you do about it? But we see him on someone who's heartbroken over that possibility. So we have someone here with us today who, uh, who enjoys, strangely, and maybe there's more than just one, and some of you just keep this to yourself. Uh, he enjoys walking in the woods for miles at a time for no particular reason. Now, thankfully, others have enjoyed that, too, and they have made a path for him to do that. And if he so chose, he could walk in the woods, and you can, too, from Georgia to Maine on one path. And some of you know this, the the Appalachian or Appalachian, depending on where you're from, trail goes from from Georgia to Maine. And Isaac Hutzel has, has done this at least twice now, twice, two times, more than two He goes out just on a whim, hikes a portion of it. I used to do that in college. Uh, Some friends of mine and I, every weekend in the summer, we would get together and go and hike a portion. Um, Probably we would do in a weekend what Isaac does in one day of his hike. We weren't really... Anyway, that's a story for another time. Um, If you, there are those who decide they're going to hike the whole thing all at once. And uh, if you go from Georgia to Maine, you cross into Maine and, and it feels like, wow, I'm almost done. It's the last state. Uh, You don't realize, or maybe you do, that Maine has the second longest section of the Appalachian Trail, Appalachian, who 
so do we should we vote on that anyway the at uh 281 miles still to go in this last state if that's not overwhelming enough shortly after you cross into maine you reach what is called the mahusuk notch have you heard of this it is unanimously called the hardest mile of the AT. One mile, it will take the most experienced hiker about three to four hours to complete. You are walking through a valley between two mountains that is just littered with boulders like house and human-sized boulders. Uh, There are sections that uh, the passage is so tight, especially if you're a through hiker, your backpack is too large for you and your backpack to make through. And so you have to take it off and either push it ahead of you to get through, and you have to crawl on your knees sometimes. The holes are so small, and it's so... It's not like the rest of the AT where just the little white blazes are enough. There's, a, there's actually one place on it where someone has kindly spray-painted an arrow to what looks like just a hole in the rock telling you, yes, this is the path forward. And you have to navigate through that. But it's, it's not impossible... But it's only not impossible because of how many who have already gone, who have already taken the path, who already see you're going to have to take your back off. It's a, it is a narrow passage that you are approaching. So let's, let's stand for the reading of God's word in which Jesus brings up a narrow door. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter And will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south, 
and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So what we have in these last two paragraphs of chapter 13 are really two somewhat unrelated topics. But they are related in that it, they happen together. I mean, we're told here that uh, while, while he was speaking over the one question, at that same hour, some Pharisees came to speak to him. And in the first, what we see is uh, someone who seems to have concern for the many, but in his concern for the many, it sort of overshadows or ignores the need of the one. And then what you see in the second paragraph is almost the opposite. An apparent concern for the one that ignores the need of the many. And so first we look at this, this first paragraph, this first question. And once again, as in typical Jesus fashion, he doesn't really answer the question, at least not in a very straightforward way. Well, actually, he does answer the question, but he answers it more specifically than the man was necessarily asking. The man asks the question, uh, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And even in English, even in our English versions, you can see the emphasis that Jesus puts on his answer. His answer isn't about the many. His answer is literally about you. He says, you strive to enter by the narrow door. He says, you are in danger of being left outside. So many times, it's, isn't it interesting how easy it is for us to take just theological topics and turn them into theoretical conversation? Will those who are saved be few? Without ever considering how 
How does this impact me? Will one who is saved be me? Should be the man's question. We often turn theological topics or things about God into just kind of heady conversation. Things that just kind of, things we can argue with each other over. Uh, I received an encouraging email this week from from someone who was listening to, of all things, talks on double predestination, which doesn't sound like all that encouraging. This idea that, that God is God over both the saved and the reprobate. Uh, but this in this email, this brother said, as I listened to the talk on election... I was overwhelmed with one thought. Why me? Why me? He had to pull over to the side of the road. He was weeping over the truth that some theological thing that we'd love to just argue about in Sunday school, but what the truth of it meant was that this, this is unmerited favor. This is what being saved by grace means. God chose me. Me. And that's what Jesus is concerned for this man. He's like, forget them and they. What about you? You strive to enter through the narrow door. The word strive is the word agonizomai, which you can hear, agonize. Like it's a, it's, there's work. Now not saved by works, but, but you need to strive to enter through this narrow door. Like how narrow is the door? And I started thinking about that. Well, so first of all, the door is Jesus shaped. Like the only way in is through Jesus. So that's a pretty narrow door. The, the door is only wide enough for one person at a time. Like, you're not saved because you're holding your mom or dad's hand. You're not saved because of what your spouse believes. This door is wide enough for you alone. This door is small enough that you have to take everything off. There's nothing else. You are either identified in Christ or you're looking for something else. This is a narrow door. This striving, what is this striving? Well, it's the it's those two steps that you see throughout Luke. Repent, believe. Repent Trust Jesus and not yourself. Repent and put your faith in Christ. But Jesus wants you to understand that when we talk about God as being patient and long-suffering, that doesn't mean infinitely indefinite. The 
time of salvation will come to an end. And you will have either already entered through the narrow door or it will be shut against you forever. He says, once the master closes the door in verse 25, and he keeps it so personal, you will be outside and you will say, Lord, open to us. And the master of the house will say, I don't know you or where you've come from. And you will say, what? How can that be? Like, didn't we, we ate and drank with you? You, you, you taught in our streets. Familiarity and exposure and proximity are not the same as following Christ. I remember one time I was uh, at one of the General Assemblies and a couple of us Three of us pastors were sitting around talking, and a man, a, a new book had just come out, and um, and this author, we knew he lived in in Philadelphia, and so we asked the uh, we asked the one pastor who was also in Philadelphia. We were like, "Hey, have you read that book yet?" And he said, "Read it. He's one of my elders." And then that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> And then the two of us looked at each other, the other two pastors, we were like, not, uh, not, not really an answer. <laughs> uh, you don't really pick up what the author is putting down just because you happen to be in the same room with him on occasion. <laughs> you, don't, you don't pick up what Jesus is laying down just because you happen to be in the same room as him every once in a while. There's... There is a striving, there is a working, there is a repenting, there is a putting your trust in Jesus alone. He says, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. That feels a little strong, doesn't it? Workers of evil, I mean, come on. We just, I mean, they just didn't go in through the right door. Does that really... Do you really need to be called workers of evil? And I think two, two examples maybe help us see this. What is, I mean, isn't, like, let's say, so God is our father and we are his children. So, so if I'm, so if you, some of you are parents and most of you have parents, so this should make sense. Uh, imagine a parent, now you will have to imagine this part. Imagine a parent who always only does good by you. Like always only has your best interests at heart. Always only gives you good things. And then imagine a child ungrateful. Imagine a child doesn't see what the parent has sacrificed, doesn't really care, thinks more of like, well, of course you did. You owe it to me. I mean, you're, that's, 
you signed up for this. You should be sacrificing for me. Isn't that your job? Uh, you know, as you hear it from the outside, like maybe you hear it from your kids and you're like, oh, yes, honey, that's true. But when you hear another kid doing it, you're like, oh, what an evil child. Like there's nothing more disheartening than an ungrateful child. That is bratty a bad word? more of an adjective so not, i'm not calling anyone a brat i'm just saying sometimes children ask, act bratty and so like that's and this this attitude of ingratitude sorry that wasn't unintended uh the attitude of ingratitude is evil but like let's take it to another a more old testament a more biblical example throughout the old testament God compares his, the unfaithfulness of Israel to the unfaithfulness of a spouse. And God is the perfect, loving, all-giving, always-pursuing spouse, and yet his people continue to turn away in unfaithfulness, looking to another to fulfill themselves. And we would say that is evil. That is evil. If God has sent His Son as the Savior of the world and, and you would turn your back to Him, it's evil. He says, you will weep, you will gnash your teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets Entering in, but you on the outside. In other words, it's not that God isn't going to be faithful to his promise. He is. But his promise has always called for receiving his promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they received his promise. It's not, it's not just who you're a part of or you know, I'm heading to Memphis, Tennessee, as they might say there. Are you from good people? You know, the PCA is now 50 years old. Is it enough to say, well, well, Lord, I was a member of the PCA. I mean, really, the finest denomination since the word denomination and while that may be true, just being a member of the PCA is not enough. Just being, just being able to point to the fathers of the PCA. He says, you yourself will be cast out. Now, people will come. People will come into the kingdom. They will come from the east and west, from the north and south. Jesus is reminding us this isn't just a Jewish thing. This isn't just an Israel thing. This is a worldwide thing. The kingdom of God is for all the peoples and tribes and languages and nations of the world. You know, our call to worship was from Isaiah 2. And if we had time, I would do a call to worship from Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 46 so that we would get the understanding of it's a little odd 
to have a hard time realizing that this was always about the entire world. That salvation was always going to be for the world. That God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and he says, The world will be blessed through you, through your seed. They will come from all over and recline at table. It's interesting. Luke only uses that phrase three times, that this word recline at. And the first is in Luke 2, 7, when the angel tells the shepherds where they'll find the baby Jesus. He will be reclining at a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And then in, in Luke 12, he talks about how the master, when he comes home, he'll, he'll, he'll invite his servants in and he'll say, come, recline at table. Let me serve you. And here, they come from north and south and east and west and they will come and recline at table. In other words, Jesus comes in humiliation and humility and reclines at a feeding trough for animals. He lowers himself and humbles himself to recline at table for us, so that we can come and recline at table with Him and receive the rest from the work He has called us to. There is a door. It is narrow. The time is short. So you... Strive to enter. So this brings up the second conversation. We're told some Pharisees came and and said to Jesus while he's having this conversation, and they say, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, is this genuine concern? Is this them kind of playing? Is this... Are they pretending to be concerned just because they're tired of him and they just don't want him to be around? Uh, Interestingly, it doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't even address it. Uh, We always assume, oh, they're Pharisees. They must be evil. They all have pencil mustaches and black capes. And and when they laugh, it kind of sneers. and (laughs) And But that's not necessarily true for all the Pharisees. After all, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he went to Jesus and said, we know you're from God. Later, Nicodemus, in a meeting with just other Pharisees, he defends Jesus a little bit. And at the end, Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea and buries Jesus. So not all Pharisees. Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. So not all Pharisees. But again, it really doesn't matter The point, the focus is on Herod, and even that's Jesus. He doesn't care what their their motives are. Like, he just turns it, and and he calls Herod a bad name. So that's kind of interesting. So apparently that's allowed sometimes. Uh, Before kids, you start writing that part down. So stop sinning completely. Give yourself as a sacrifice for others. And then I promise you, your moms will not 
call you on it when you call anyone bad names. But that's it. Got to do the first two before you do the third. Okay. But here's Jesus. And he says, you tell that fox. Now, fox, interestingly, has really had the same connotation for centuries. I mean, even Aesop's fables were written before Christ was born. And a fox is this sly, clever animal. Um, a fox in Middle Eastern stories is often uh, this insignificant animal. Like the stories would be told of looking out into the field and thinking you saw a lion because of the coloring. And then you get closer and you're like, oh, oh, it's just a fox. Okay, never mind. Someone get, someone get a bat. No, no, sorry. It's a bad illustration. Anyway, Jesus is saying... Herod is nothing. Go tell Herod. Go tell Herod, look, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. In verse 32, and the third day I finish my course. Literally, I reach my goal. I accomplish my purpose. In other words, I'm going to accomplish what I came to accomplish, and Herod cannot stop me. It's definitely an allusion to the resurrection, just this day, the second day, the third day. On the third day, I will accomplish the salvation of mankind, and Herod has nothing to say about it. But then he backs up. He says, listen, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day. Partly because it just, it just shouldn't be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus can't look at the accomplishing of salvation through the resurrection without the very obvious necessity of dying first. You cannot have a resurrection without a death. And so even in talking about accomplishing the purpose for which he came, he's talking about his death. He is going to Jerusalem to die. And as one writer put it, uh, Jesus' death will not occur at the hands of Herod, but according to the will of God. And it will not be a deprivation of life, but a fulfillment of his life. Jesus knows that he's going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus knows he's already predicted it to his disciples. He knows that the priests, the very men called to bring God's people to God, the men called to to help God's people understand their need for mercy and God's mercy, these men will be the ones who want his head. He will come to Jerusalem, his city, and he will be crucified. But just like the first question, Jesus doesn't let 
theological conversation not have a personal point, Jesus also doesn't let his purpose, his going to Jerusalem to die, simply be this stoic, well, it is what it is. People are going to be people. They're going to, I'm going to get there. They're going to sacrifice me and then we'll move on. Jesus doesn't talk about Jerusalem or about God's people walking away from God without being heartbroken over it. Without crying out for them to change their course. Jesus laments Jerusalem's future. In the Greek, there's no O in verse 34, which means that from verse 33 to verse 34, like the literal last word and then first words are Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Even just in the sentence, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this, this doubling of the name, it's this crying. It's, it's like Jesus speaking to Martha in chapter 12. Martha, Martha. Jesus is longing for Jerusalem to hear him, to heed him, to return to him. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But the triplet, it's, it's like holy, holy, holy. He's, he's calling his people to repent. I how often have I wished I could gather you, like gather your children, like, like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. Now, is it possible that he's really making the he's making the prediction about the triumphal entry? You won't see me until the day you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what happens at the triumphal entry as people come and gather and they sing praises and they they recognize or at least some of the crowd recognize here is. David's son, here is, they're singing, Hosanna, save us, O Lord, save us, we pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's also a more personal, simple truth. You will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not see me until you confess who I am, who you are, and what you need from me. Even knowing his purpose, he is heartbroken over what will come to Jerusalem. It reminds me of Charles Spurgeon's quote. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. 
And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let's pray. God, we need your heart for the lost. Would you break our hearts? I pray that we would not be satisfied with just theological conversations about elect and non-elect, about predestination, about about the saved and the lost. Jesus, break our hearts for our neighbors. And Jesus, open our eyes to our own need. You are calling, pleading, begging, calling to us to enter, to strive, to come to you. God, give us the repentance and the faith to come and enter and be healed. And though we enter alone, as we come to you, we find we are not alone. But there are others who have spray-painted the way for us, who have blazed the trail, and who wait to celebrate with us. God, give us hearts for the lost and for the repentant. In Jesus' name, amen.